Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $121 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So our virtual podcast booth is getting a lot of usage lately. This is our third show since the stay-at-home restrictions were put in place in March to curb the spread of COVID-19. But we're now starting to see many parts of the economy reopen, and before too long, we hope to be back in our Manhattan studio. But for now, I'm excited to welcome my colleagues, Dimitri Kaiken and Bob Feitler, portfolio managers of the ClearBridge Large Cap Value Strategy, into the virtual booth. Dimitri, Bob, welcome on the board. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. And I'm coming to you today from New Jersey, while Dimitri and Bob are joining from New York. Dimitri was last with us a year ago to discuss the media landscape. And since then, we've seen at least three streaming services debut. Does that sound right, Dimitri? It about, sounds about right. And Bob, meanwhile, is making his podcast debut, and we look forward to learning more about how he and Dimitri construct and manage value portfolios. So markets have obviously rebounded strongly from late March after the lockdowns went into effect. And one of the key catalysts for this rally has been massive fiscal and monetary stimulus, which has historically boded well for value stocks. We'll discuss the impact of these macro factors, but perhaps more importantly for Dimitri and Bob, the role of fundamental research and bottom-up stock selection in today's podcast entitled Seeking Value from a Position of Strength. As always, we'd love to get your feedback about the topics we cover on our podcasts and how we can make them better. So you can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at clearbridge.com. So it's been an interesting ride in financial markets here recently. Um, If you look into the middle part of last week, the 50 trading days from the lows that we've seen in March have been the strongest in modern U.S. history. I've been saying that it's been four years worth of price action in four short months. And the rally that we've seen from the lows has really been consistent with what we've seen since the financial crisis. Growth has led throughout the entire recovery. You've seen a value over to rotation here over the last couple of weeks, but it really has been growth's world. Now, Bob, we want to talk to you about this. You know, I know value has started to come back recently, but growth has been outperforming since the bottom. But this has been a dynamic that has been going on for over 10 years. So why hasn't value outperformed over the last 10 years? And what could really cause that to change going forward? So to us, value simply means buying relatively more near and medium term earnings power per dollar investment. I think people have thought about it historically as buying a dollar's worth of value for 90 cents. This is an investment approach that has worked over time and never goes out of style. However, value stocks do tend to have relatively more exposure to cyclical sectors, particularly financial services, but also areas like energy. And if you look at the past 12 years, it was bookended by the worst financial crisis since the Depression, followed by most recently with coronavirus, which led to the sharpest slowdown in economic activity in history, combined with uh, a steep decline in demand for energy prices. So despite these two extraordinary bookends over the time period sort of ahead of uh, the great financial crisis and now, value stocks have generated about 5% uh, total return for investors. That's way below what we would expect over a longer period of time, and we think there's some catch-up potentially due. 
That said, we, we also think that, that it's somewhat misconstrued uh, to look backward like that. Banks have spent the last decade uh, under really rigorous uh, regulatory oversight, building capital, improving risk management, and the large banks in particular, the mega banks, have the most diversified product sets, the most diversified geographies that they've ever had in history. Uh, these are actually better businesses than they have ever been in, in history, and it's not by a small amount. It's by a great amount. I think over time, that'll prove out. They're still cyclical, but they have a much better exposure that way. So we think that they're well positioned to perform well over the next decade. Another group, Energy, obviously got hit very hard when people went to work from, work from home rules, travel, airline travel down dramatically. But that's a self-correcting phenomenon with commodities. So we think that that will, that will work its way back as well. So you have these in other areas as well, but those are the two, two of the main areas that have been pressured the, the total return potential for value stocks in the past, but we think those are very different going forward. So in the very near term, we think that the performance of value stocks will reflect uh, the outlook for the economy and economic based on versus expectations, which are pretty dire currently. And we think the outlook longer term for value investors is very compelling. Yeah, Bob, you mentioned two sectors, energy and financials. I mean, you, you alluded to it, the cure for low energy prices or low energy prices. Um, so I, you know, I can I certainly see a situation in the next couple of years where demand catches up with supply and you're going to have to see prices reflect that reality. But also, if you look at banks, uh, banks are the one of the best performing industries over the last month. You've seen them up uh, over 23% and financials is, are catching a, a pretty nice bid here. So I, I, I do agree with you that they're cheap but uh, they're in really good position right now to be able to capitalize as the economy starts to come back online. Now, we've talked a little bit about the kind of like the bigger picture, the, the macro picture. Let's dive down a little bit and talk more about the micro approach and the, the approach that you and Bob take. So, Dimitri, talk a little bit about what's different about your approach versus other value managers that are out there. Uh, yes, Jeff. So we differ from other value uh, investors by focusing less on mean reversion of what is statistically cheap. So we don't start by looking at stocks that look inexpensive relative to traditional valuation metrics. Instead, what we do is we focus on businesses with sustainable competitive advantages and stable and growing end markets. And when we look at the end market, which is equally important to the business model itself, to the strength of the franchise, we look at how sustainable that competitive advantage is, how stable the end market shares are. We, we try to avoid uh, situations where there is obsolescence or technological disruption risk or disintermediation risk. So obviously, you want to buy cheap growth with sustainable advantage if it's uh, available to you, but those opportunities far and few in between. But that's the, the ideal situation. So when you look at the world through the prism of high-quality businesses that operate in stable and markets, um, it also results in a longer-term investment horizon than most of our peers. So we ideally like to buy this business and own it for, you know, certainly through the cycle, but I, you know, possibly well beyond the cycle. And there are certain names in the portfolio that have been owned for 10 to 15 years. Uh, and that results in a portfolio with about 10 to 15% turnover and really an investment approach where we look at these businesses as business owners, not really just buying stocks, but really think of the business owner mentality. And it also gives us an opportunity to uh, take advantage of market dislocations, which happen from time to time. And most recent uh, period certainly was an example of that. So the business quality and the stability of a market is what we start with as opposed to cheap stocks. 
And then uh, being value investor, it's uh, critical, obviously, not to, to overpay. So valuation is an essential metric, but it's only relevant if the business is uh, really in a position to continue to generate earnings and cash flows on a sustainable basis. There are plenty of stocks that look statistically cheap, and they remain cheap, and they become sort of melting ice cubes or value trap, however you want to define, uh, define them. And oftentimes it happens because uh, even though the short-term cash flows are there, you know, the markets, are, the end market might be shrinking, and therefore it's hard, it sort of becomes a treadmill. So those situations are, that we try to avoid. And when it comes to valuations, essentially what we try to do is we try to value the core business, sort of uh, what's in the market right now, the products and services, and we really uh, put real vo- very little value in sort of call options, right? So the growth beyond the core business, to the extent that things materialize in the future, that we are not really valuing, it's a nice and on the cake, but we don't necessarily want to pay for that. We also spend a lot of time trying to understand the, the balance sheet and what's the normalized level of capitalization for the company, for a company or for a business. And we love companies with overcapitalized balance sheets. So if you look at some of the current holdings, such as Berkshire, Google, Apple, you know, Microsoft, those are companies that have uh, each over $100 billion of cash in the books. And that's a very good thing for a value investor because it gives you a lot of... Uh, sort of dry powder to take advantage of opportunities whenever they uh, present themselves. So the objective is to construct a high-quality portfolio of about 50 stocks that are trading at reasonable valuations uh, that generate, over time, um, competitive risk-adjusted returns all with an eye uh, towards risk and downside protection. Attractive valuation, superior risk-adjusted returns, downside protection. It sounds like this is the, the best of all worlds. And I honestly think given the nature of this recession, as the economy reopens, there's going to be a lot of starts and stops and some potential speed bumps along the way. So this obviously would be a portfolio that would that hold up pretty well in that type of environment. Bob, maybe let me ask you a question then. Then how do you define like a value stock? You know, are there certain valuation or accounting metrics that you look at with your approach? I know that Dimitri had mentioned balance sheet strength, for example. What metrics do you think are the, the most applicable or the, the ones that are the highest on your list? So value stocks to us are investments that offer relatively high levels of current earnings power per dollar of investment. We use various metrics to estimate what that earnings power is or sustainable free cash flow that we can generate over time. This starts with the price earnings ratio, uh, but we also look at various other metrics, including enterprise value to EBITDA or price to tangible book value in balance sheet intensive sectors like financials or utilities, some of the parts for multi-part business models. At the end of the day, we apply multiple tools in an effort to develop a robust, holistic valuation of the sustainable earnings power of the business. Yeah, that's really important because no one variable can tell you the whole story or give you the whole picture. And obviously, some variables come in and out of favor, depending on uh, which cycle that you're in. But one thing that I noticed about the portfolio that I actually found pretty interesting is that uh, you own a couple of FANG stocks in your portfolio. As a large cap value manager, you don't... Bing isn't necessarily something that comes on your radar. I'm sure you're you're probably happy for having a couple of those constituents in there, given the rally that they've seen. But talk to me a little bit about the rationale for owning some of these things. And uh, maybe a second question to that is, do you think expectations are a little bit too high, given the run that they've seen over the last couple of months? So over the past year, we've made opportunistic purchases of Apple and Google, which are traditionally thought of as being growth stocks. Apple has a dominant position in high-end phones and an extremely loyal customer base. This has enabled the company to build a stable, growing services business that already accounts for 
over a third of profits, and then that's a percentage that's growing and stable. When we acquired the position in the summer of 2019, the stock was pressured by a lull in handset sales as customers anticipated a whole new cycle with 5G, and that created a buying opportunity in terms of uh, the price of Apple stock. Uh, we remain bullish on 5G, but obviously COVID will slow that process down a little bit. Google is a much more recent purchase. Uh, they have a dominant position in search that's enabled to generate substantial growing advertising revenues while also investing aggressively in the future. We initiated a position when the stock sold off sharply on concerns of a cyclical downturn in advertising revenues tied to the actions to combat the coronavirus. But if you look at both companies, they each have balance sheets with no debt. They actually each have well over $100 billion of cash, uh, and they each generate substantial uh, amounts of free cash flow. So we, we value that substantial cash, net cash position that each of these banks has. So we, fig- we figure that is going to come back to us as shareholders over time. So when we adjust valuation to reflect for a normal capital structure and earnings to what we think is sustainable mid-cycle kind of return, Apple and Google actually screen as very compelling valuations at the time of purchase with uh, low to mid-teens multiples of earnings. What about the second part of the question about expectations being embedded in the couple of constituents from the bank? complex. Dimitri, any, any thoughts there? Well, look, I mean, I think that um, being a long-term value investors, we try not to uh, get distracted by short-term sort of expectation game. We leave it up to uh, sort of traders that are trying to play the quarter. I think if you look at the uh, these businesses that Bob just discussed, whether it's uh, Apple or Google or some, some of the other companies, they have you know, characteristics that we find attractive in terms of dominant market share and stable and growing in markets and overcapitalized balance sheet. And I think on a longer term basis, we can continue to own it. In the near term, obviously, given the uncertainty that we're dealing with, uh, particularly now with pandemic and as states and local municipalities open up, there's going to be a lot of, as you mentioned earlier, fits and starts and things are going to be bumpy down the road. But uh, we try to take a, keep an eye on the uh, on, on the North Star and focus on what, what the value creation opportunities are over long term. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. That's obviously, you know, look at business model first, sustainability of that business model, and then look at obviously valuation, which is why a couple of these constituents are, are in the portfolio. But one of the concerns that I have, right, and I hear a lot from our clients, is that value doesn't necessarily work in times of technological growth. I mean, what are your views on that? Is that, is that a true statement? So disruptive technological growth creates challenges for traditional companies, but this is not a new concept. However, it is fair to say the pace of change has accelerated, and this does require us to be constantly vigilant in evaluating durability of the business models that we invest in. For example, we have very little exposure to retail because of the high risk of disintermediation. Uh, one major exception to that is Home Depot, where it has both its own scale uh, and product mix that enable it to be very competitive even against online competition. It's also invested tremendously in its own omnichannel delivery. But it's important to note, why is technology so such a powerful grower? It's not simply because of consumer usage. It's also some of the biggest buyers of technology are the financial services institutions that we talked about earlier. For example, uh, JP Morgan and Bank of America each spend over $10 billion per year on technology. And that's for a pretty powerful benefit for them. It allows them to operate with substantially fewer bank branches, smaller bank branches, and allows them to deliver services to customers on a national basis much more efficiently. So 
this is a benefit to the banks, both in terms of and, and strengthening their franchises and enables them to serve customers better, faster, cheaper. And uh, I think that's the other side of technology, that there is a positive side. These are actually technology companies in disguise often. And $10 billion is a huge amount of capital to, to invest in technology. I wasn't aware of that with the, the big banks. Dimitri, any, any thoughts on this question? Yeah, no, it's, it's, listen, I mean, we, we often discuss, Bob and I, when we look at existing holdings or are considering new ideas for the portfolio, we are, you know, trying to sort of understand what the risk of technological disruption is, as I mentioned earlier, or the product obsolescence. Uh, can this company be Amazon, using Amazon as a verb as opposed to in the name of the company? So, But at the same time, we try to play offensive, not just defensive. And there are plenty of names in the portfolio, holdings and long-term holdings in the portfolio that benefit from technology. So, for example, we uh, all are now working from home and we need connectivity, whether it's a, uh, essentially landline or broadband connectivity through your uh, cable provider it's the wireless connectivity through your wireless carrier, whoever that might be. You know, we participate in those explosive growth that we continue to expect for many years to come by uh, ownership uh, and having exposure to long-term holding of a, uh, in the portfolio American Tower. American Tower is the largest wireless tower operator in the world, and it's really a truly global beneficiary of the robust wireless data traffic growth. So they lease space on their wireless towers to the wireless carriers on a long-term basis with price escalators. And as demand for wireless traffic continues to grow with 30-plus percent a year, even before 5G, those carriers need to put more equipment on those sites, and uh, American Tower gets the benefit of that. You know, when it comes to working from home that we all have been doing for the last 90 days or so, uh, we all need broadband connections. So that broadband connection, uh, nine times out of 10 coming from the cable company. So we have exposure through our ownership of Charter and Comcast uh, to two largest cable operators in the country that have dominant share in broadband connectivity. And it's an absolutely essential product and service that we just learned how essential it is uh, over the last 90 days as we all work from home. But to Bob's point, it's not only what they do by selling broadband services to their customers. It's also how they use technology internally. You know, before they used to roll out the truck, so the technician would come in, show up in the, at your house, they install the clunky set-top box and, uh, and a modem, and uh, the process could take hours and cost a lot of money. Now with the technology and everything being basically client-based, there is software that rides on a very slim, slim set-top box. It's a plug-and-play device, very easy self-installation. So you eliminate a lot of costs. The same thing with uh, troubleshooting. You can do a lot of that online. A customer service can be done through technology and voice recognition. So technology is a disruptor, but it's also an enabler. And we try to uh, be very comprehensive and diligent in that. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's an interesting area that we spend a lot of time. And I just want to use uh, one more example in terms of how we play technology. And it's a totally different area, but it's uh, sort of, I think, hit the, the, the question uh, right in the middle of what you, what you were asking earlier. So we all read about electric vehicles, right? Tesla and uh, the traditional OEMs are trying to sort of play the catch-up game. It is very disruptive for traditional OEMs, right? Because they've got an infrastructure that supports internal combustion engine vehicle. 
the entire supply chain has been designed over the decades to, to support that sort of uh, technology. Uh, EV is very disruptive for them, but EV is actually very positive for another holding of ours, such as T-Connectivity. So T-Connectivity is a company that makes connectors for all things, effectively, whether it's a data center, whether it's a medical device, or in this case that we're discussing, a vehicle. So vehicle, anytime there is an electric connection, it needs a wire that starts and ends with a connector. Electric vehicle has a content for TE connectivity of about $120 per, per vehicle as compared to a traditional ICE vehicle, internal combustion engine vehicle, of about 65 So roughly double. And it's a very good business. It's a high-profit business for them. And they have a very strong position. So it could be disruptive for some players of the market, but it could be actually value-creative and growth-creative for, for the others. And TE connectivity is a good example of that. Yeah, creative destruction is a key element for capitalism, but uh, it certainly helps uh, more technological growth is certainly helping a lot of these companies bring down their costs and increase their earnings and potentially the affordability of their products for the end user. I want to transition here really quickly to an area that uh, gets a lot of debate, which is share repurchase activity or share buybacks. Obviously, it's been one of the drivers of U.S. outperformance versus areas that uh, prefer to give capital back to shareholders in the forms of dividends like Europe and over in Japan. But the explosion of share back, share repurchase activity here recently after the tax cuts that we saw at the end of 2017, how has that changed the nature of some of the metrics that you're looking at, specifically book equity or, or book value, which I know is important from a value manager's perspective? Maybe I'll ask you, Bob, on what your thoughts are there. So book value is an important metric particularly for balance sheet intensive positions like companies like banks, insurance companies, or utilities. But our focus is really much more on the strong and sustainable competitive advantages, which generate cash flow over time. That makes book value a bit less relevant. I think the impacts on book value, so book value is multiples are higher because of aggressive use of leverage, and, and they're paying out more than what they earn in order to... Uh, squeeze a few extra pennies out of their earnings per share, we would view that very negatively. However, if a high price to book value is driven by sustainable returns that are not capital constrained, that's just a sign of a great business. Our focus is always on sustainable earnings and cash flows. Specifically, if you look at the large banks, they bought back a lot of shares, or any of the banks, they bought back a significant percentage of their own shares in recent years, and they continue to, not this year because of COVID, but we expect that to continue for years to come. But they retain more earnings than they pay out. So typically, they might pay out 60 or 7% of earnings, but book value still grows. Yes, I certainly think there's going to be a lot of companies that levered up to do buybacks. They're certainly probably regretting that decision now, but uh, not all companies need to be painted with that same brush. Another area or, uh, I guess, concern that a lot of investors have with investing in value is that they're concerned that we're going to be in this era of low interest rates forever, secular stagnation, if you will. So. Dimitri, does this distort asset prices through lowering discount rates? And how are you adapting to valuation in, in this type of environment? That's a great question, Jeff. So if you look at sort of global central banks, uh, pretty much every central bank has pushed rates down to zero and in some cases to, into negative territory. And theoretically, in an undistorted world, that lowers the discount rate. And uh, if you Think of sort of finance 101, uh, the, the, the business is worth the, what the net present value of the cash flow is. Uh, if the discount rate is lower, the value of the business is higher. And I think we've seen some of that sort of asset inflation 
throughout the world, right? Certainly in the equities market and many other parts of the economy as well. Having said that, if you look back a, a relatively short period of time, in, in, in the fourth quarter of 2018, the Fed signaled that it's beginning it's, you know, to tighten, and the market sold off pretty hard. And that was followed uh, very quickly in early 19 to a easing policy. And obviously, COVID caused a whole different level of uh, monetary stimulus with QE3, however you want to define it. So lower rates impact different sectors differently, obviously. Uh, for Bob spent some time talking about banks, uh, you know, bank basically borrows short lens loan very, very simplistically. So it obviously uh, hurts profitability of financials, but at the same time, it inflates valuations for a lot of other sectors of the market that are being used and looked at as sort of bond proxies. So staples, for example, have gotten to valuations that are, you know, very hard to justify in a normal environment, given their low growth expectations. But people are, you know, in a, in a hunt for yield, people are looking for stable uh, and safe returns and are willing to pay high multiples. So it, it certainly creates challenges for long-term value investors. Zero-rate policy creates challenges for long-term investors like us because we try to look at a sort of a various kind of outcomes that are possible. We don't just assume that zero-rate policy is here to stay forever. We try to look at the things on a normalized basis as well. So it, it presents a set of challenges. Having said that, uh, being bottom-up stock pickers, we believe that there is always going to be opportunities to identify you know, really good value. And uh, you, know, you can't plan for that. Mr. Market gives you an opportunity when, when, when he chooses to. But at the same time, if you're patient, those opportunities do present themselves. And uh, you know, uh, more recently, we, we initiated a position in a company called Reynolds. Reynolds make a boring company. They make a, uh, uh, aluminum foil, uh, you know, baking sheets and so on, baking paper. Just uh, you know, very stable cash flow generative company. Uh, stock went public. Company went public at a very reasonable IPO uh, at a valuation that was materially lower than many of its peers in the, in, the, in the Staples world. So you have to be patient and uh, try to cap- capitalize on opportunities when they present themselves, at the same time being sort of vigilant when it comes to valuation. Right. Well, so we're coming up on the half hour here. I just uh, want to follow up with one last final question to leave our listeners with. And uh, what's, what's your outlook for value, Dimitri? Well, I mean, I, my, my views are obviously biased, being that I've been a value manager for, for quite some time. Uh, in the <laughs> short term, as Bob mentioned early, early on on this podcast, in the short term, you know, stocks will fluctuate with, uh, and reflect uh, the sort of economic outlook, uh, particularly given how uncertain the environment is that we, we, we've been operating in. I think in the long term, in the medium and long term, we would expect a strong return for, for traditional value stocks. This period that you've mentioned since uh, the financial uh, recession of 2007, 2008, nine, it's been an, a, a pretty unprecedented period of growth for performance where growth has outperformed value by a wide margin. And I think that, you know, I'm not predicting that. Obviously, it's, it's a dangerous game to predict a rotation out of one style into another, but you could argue that value uh, in, a, in a current environment going forward should, should have a pretty, pretty bright future. 
Yeah, Yogi Berra famously said, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> That's right, true. <laughs> but um, obviously, given the attractive valuations for a lot of these high-quality businesses, I think Warren Buffett would certainly be getting excited with uh, this type of situation that we find ourselves in. And the last thing I'd like to mention before wrapping up here is that if you look at value, for example, coming out of 14 out of the past 14 recessions, value has outperformed the market for at least three months. Um, during each one and every one of those timeframes. Right now, value is inexpensive. It's neglected. You've seen large PE dispersion. And uh, the value rotation that we're seeing today is only about three weeks into uh, that rotation. So history would suggest that there may be more to come on this front. Um, but uh, Dimitri, Bob, I, I want to thank you both very much for, for joining me here in the virtual podcast booth. Thanks. Thanks for including us, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for your insightful questions. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And, and thank you, everybody, for uh, joining the podcast here. I, I hope everyone has a safe and healthy rest of the June. Uh, and I hope that you continue to join us throughout 2020. And uh, as always, we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of June 8th, 2020, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither Clearbridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.